You're listening to the Lean Six Sigma for Good podcast. We help you learn how Lean and Six Sigma concepts can be applied to nonprofits, NGOs, and not-for-profit organizations. Visit us at LeanSixSigmaForGood.com. In this podcast, I share a workshop I did on January 14th of this year at the city of Gresham, which is a city that's east of Portland, Oregon, if you're not familiar. And I worked with their uh, green business organizers to put this together to give a little bit of overview of Lean and Six Sigma because they felt that there was a good connection there with some of the, the businesses that they're working with to try to introduce them to these topics if they didn't have that background. Same with the city employees who work at um, City of Gresham. So I was really excited to get an opportunity to speak to them. Um, some background on this is uh, Greg Hayward, who kicks off the introduction, he's also involved with Association of Oregon Recyclers, and he works for the city of Gresham in their solid waste and recycling and other environmental programs, including running the green business. So we had met before previously. Um, I also know his manager, uh, Shannon, who previously had worked at Clackamas County when I worked at uh, Rockwell Collins in aerospace. So a lot of great people working in, in that um, city. And also it's cool that they're kind of a little bit further away from Portland, so they don't get as much attention. And so living not too far away, I can get over to attend a lot of their green business events and uh, just a lot of great activity happening over there. So anything I can do to help support them is I'm always uh, willing to jump in there. Uh, so we had a really good turnout for this event. I think almost 50 people attended. Um, and what I covered is basically the intro to Lean and Six Sigma and how you can apply it to your financial issues in your organization or community or your environment, the environmental issues going on or even at home. And so we go through a hands-on simulation. We also just went through like eight forms of waste, what is value, kind of looked at systems thinking, uh, value stream, one-piece flow, pull, and then also introduced a few things on Six Sigma around variation and data analysis and measurement error and process controls. So crammed a lot into this two to three hour session. It's a little lengthy, but if you're looking for a good review or you just want to hear a different slant or maybe something I say that I haven't talked about in previous podcasts, then I encourage you to listen to the whole thing. It is available on YouTube, so I've uploaded that already. I'll have a link in the show notes with uh, the video, and you can follow along and see. Basically, it's me talking, but I've got the slides pulled up, and we also uh, display the slides, so it's really easy to read. Um, it is over two hours long, um, so if you want to watch those videos, that'll be available in the YouTube link. Um, you can also download the slides. I'll put that into the show notes for this podcast if you want to have those available and read them over. So I hope you enjoy it. It is longer in length, so if you don't want to listen to the whole thing, I understand, but um, maybe there'll be some good nuggets in there that you'll take out of it. So if you have any questions, please reach out to me. You can reach me through many different sites, but um, try to consolidate everything into the LeanSixSigmaForGood.com website so you can uh, start from that point. Thanks. Hope you enjoy. My name is Greg Hayward. I'm the uh, Gresham Green Business Coordinator. I work in uh, recycling and solid waste here at the city of Gresham. Uh, and we're really excited to have everybody here today um, for a combined uh, Gresham Green Business and City of Gresham training on uh, Lean Six Sigma. 
Um, raise your hand if this is your first time ever hearing about Lean Six Sigma. All right, cool. And then raise your hand if you've maybe done some a little bit of Lean Six Sigma in the past, and if you've done a lot of it in the past. Okay, cool. Um, so I'm going to let Brian talk all about that. I'm not going to talk any more about what Lean Six Sigma is about. Um, uh, but this is um, our Gresham Green Business Coffee Hour for the month. So the Gresham Green Business Program hosts a monthly coffee hour that brings together businesses from around Gresham to kind of share their ideas about what they're working on in sustainability, uh, learn from one another, see um, ideas in action, kick the tires, I like to say, on sustainable ideas, um, and go from there. We found that when businesses are talking to one another, they learn a lot more and they get a lot more out of it um, than just having Gresham Greg or Government Greg come say, hey, you should totally do this. It's awesome. Uh, it means a lot more when it's coming from your fellow businesses. So we try to create a network where that is easy to, uh, to naturally happen. There's more information on our Green Business Program over at the table. Um, there's coffee and granola bars and uh, clementines, a compost bin for your peels. Um, feel free to get up whenever you need to. Uh, the bathroom is located around the corner to the right. Uh, feel free to go when you need to. There will be a break about uh, halfway through around 1030, 1045. Um, and what was the other thing I was gonna say? Um, so that everybody kind of knows who's in the room, uh, raise your hand if you're a city investment employee. Okay, and then uh, put your hands down. Raise your hand if you are with the Gresham Green Business Program or here because you heard about the Gresham Business Okay. Some of you didn't raise your hand because there's. And uh, if we could, um, from the city department, say you're from. So if you're from planning, raise your hand here. Finance, um, environmental services, or uh, what other departments am I thinking of? Government, uh, government management. Right. Anybody else? And then from the businesses that are here, could you just raise a hand? You no, know, we've got Plexus over here. Um, other organizations, yeah. The Quality Inn. Quality Inn, that's right. That's right. Bridgestone. Bridgestone, Firestone, the big DC, yeah. North Cross Handling. North Cross Handling System, yeah. Mountain Community College. Great, great. Yeah. Samson. Samson. Good. I'm still trying to figure out where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else that I've met? Yeah. John Deere. John Deere, the DC here. Cool. Um, so I want to do that so that if you'd like to talk during the break, you kind of know some of the businesses that are here and some of the different types of people that are in the room. Um, and the last thing I was going to say, this is our coffee hour for the year, so, uh, for the month. So we're not going to do an end of the month when we normally do our coffee hour. Oh, Birch Community Services in the back there. Absolutely. <laughs> um, all right. So let me just give a little bit of an introduction to Brian. Um, so Brian has been doing uh, process improvement work over the last uh, 20 years. And uh, he was previously with Rockwell Collins, which is an interesting organization in uh, Wilsonville, I believe, where they, they manufacture um, fighter jet pilot helmets. Helmets. Yeah, so really important, really precise type work. And you were doing process improvement work there. Uh, and then about three years back, he started his own independent uh, consulting agency and does lean process improvement around the Portland, uh, Vancouver metro area and, and beyond. 
Um, he's also the chair of Recycling Advocates, which is a nonprofit within the Portland metro area that helps advance recycling. Um, and he became involved with our Gresham Green Business Program. He came to some of our coffee hours and was like, hey, I'd love to do a training. Uh, and so this has uh, kind of come to be today. Another really cool thing I'd like to mention is that um, Brian and his uh, wife, Vera, um, they're really living uh, this lean lifestyle. So they've taken lean uh, concepts and applied it to their daily life. They've downsized. Um, they've been very strategic about the work that they take on and the amount that they take on. Um, and that's allowed them time to travel, more time to hang out with their family, um, and all kinds of things like that. So it's interesting when you can apply Lean Six Sigma to big businesses and you can apply it to your personal life. So I think it'll be very interesting for, for all of you. So with that, I'm gonna let Brian take okay. it over. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, I think that's one thing I wanna uh, leave today with, with you guys, is to think about ways you can apply this to your work, you know, and do things a little simpler, easier, faster, with less struggle. But also, when you go home, think about what are the things and tasks I'm doing at my house, and how can I do that a little more efficiently so I don't waste so much time and I can get back to doing the fun stuff, relaxing things, or uh, whatever you want to do with that free time. So, and a lot of this is not about making people go faster. It's about just looking at the work that you do and the tasks that you do and thinking about different ways of doing that. So that's what I want to hopefully leave you with. And if that expands into um, activities at your work, uh, even better. Right. So hopefully you all leave with. Uh, that some of these, all these, the concepts have an application in both home and at work. Okay, so if not, then let's talk about that as we get towards the end, and I'll try to see if I can understand the work you're doing and try to give you some examples to think about. So keep that in the back of your mind as we're going through some of these topics. So just a little bit about me. Um, I grew up in Iowa City, Iowa, and I went to school at the University of Iowa, and then kind of through different transfers uh, through the company I worked at, uh, made it out here to Oregon. And my background is in statistics and quality management, and that's how I got into process improvement work. And um, fortunately, I was able to go into an organization and just, I didn't have any direct responsibilities. I just got basically tasked to say, go out and help processes and help people out with their data or their process workflows. So it was a really cool job, and I got to see all different parts of the organization. I probably knew more about how the organization worked than most people did, but I got to see all the different processes that connected from HR to uh, IT to uh, purchasing to supply chain management, all those different areas. So that gave me a really good experience and um, examples. There's different certification levels that Lean and Six Sigma offer up, so I'll talk about that a little bit later. So this is what we're gonna go through today. We're gonna start off by talking about Lean concepts, and then we're gonna talk a little bit on Six Sigma concepts as we get further along. But I usually start with Lean because the concepts are a little bit more intuitive for people. And sometimes the Six Sigma concept gets heavy into the data analysis, and that can be scary and a little, um, uh, yeah, just basically scary for people. Um, and so we're going to ease into that a little bit with the data. But there's a whole host of details beyond there. So if you are interested in this topic, uh, there's lots of different um, options to expand and learn. but. The number one thing I'd say is just practice. Just like anything else is to practice what you learn. That's the best way to learn, so uh, I'd encourage that as a next step from here. So I think I got a good handle on who is in the audience, so that's good. We have some mix here. 
If you do have some examples that pertain to something I'm talking about, uh, please feel free to, to raise your hand and just uh, give that example. I think that makes a lot more sense when you can hear other people talking about, yeah, we used to do things this way and now we do it a different way and this is tied into the concept I'm, I'm bringing up. So I've got a couple of videos to go through. Um, I want it to be somewhat interactive. We'll do one simulation as well. And then I'll try to have a couple of breakouts to have a little discussion so you can talk about what did we just go over and how did that pertain to, to what you're doing. So I, the best way I think to introduce this is to go through a video. So this video was done by um, some consultants who work at Toyota. And they, as part of their consulting work, they work with their suppliers, but they also work with government agencies and nonprofits. And this is a really cool video of some of the work they did with the food, uh, food bank in New York after Hurricane Sandy. I love to work, but I also like to put smiles on people's faces. <laughs> If there's a child out there that's in need, I need to help this person out. When we down to our last box, and you have like seven families standing on the line and you just have that one box and you don't know what exactly to do, that kills me. George is a great leader. He knows what he's doing, but um, they didn't really have a system kind of set up. Because if you have a good system, I think the work takes care of itself. Call TPS the Toyota Production System. The summation of many, many small, simple, cheap improvements can have a very big impact. People are starting to understand that these basic principles of the Toyota Production System apply to any kind of process. It doesn't have to be a manufacturing process. have our way of doing it, but if there's a faster way for us to go out and give food out to people faster, then I'm all for it. I'm all for it. What about a different box size so that we're not shipping so much air? If we could go to a smaller box, we would have the benefit of being able to put more meals on the truck to serve more people. The side benefit being it's not so difficult to handle. thing that struck me was how difficult it was for the volunteers that were there to pack that box. I mean, they were walking long distances. They were carrying heavy weight. It was kind of disarray, just the table in the middle. Everybody was scrambling to get stuff open. And I'm like, this is not really too productive. <laughs> so by putting everybody on one side of the line and having the material come from the opposite, we think we're going to get a smoother flow. Yeah. Let's go for it now. I don't, I, don't, I don't care if I leave work late. I don't, I don't, I don't care. You know, I don't want you to have to walk 
15 feet to go get those two cans of corn. I want those cans of corn to be readily available to you in the right quantity at the right place at the right time so that you can pack it in the box. Wow, this looks a lot different, doesn't it? It's cool, yeah. Does anybody remember how long it was taking us to pack one box when we first started? Three minutes. Three minutes? That's exactly right. It was around three minutes. Three minutes per box. What do you think we were packing one box? How long and how many seconds today? About 11 seconds. Kaizen is a Japanese word for continuous improvement. And what this philosophy means is we always want to strive step by step to make a process. One thing I did learn from these guys is uh, how to structure things uh, one by one, you know, not just take it as a whole thing and just be like, it's a mess, but instead I can take step by step by step. turn to your neighbor, introduce yourself, and then just talk about what did you see that you liked about the video. Uh, so just take a minute or two here. But, uh... <laughs> is how this stuff makes so much sense, but it's hard to make the time to even step back and think about it, because I can think of a lot of things I'd like to improve if I just had an hour to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really important part of uh, improvement is you have to invest a little bit of time to, to yeah, step out of the work and kind of look at it from a different perspective. That's a challenge because you're already probably struggling to keep up. So that time you're spending, you know, evaluating the process, you're getting further behind. Right? So That's a big challenge is how do you get that initial, uh, get over that initial hump? Because uh, that first improvement will then save you time in the future, but you got to, I have to go step backwards first before you can go forward on that. That's a big challenge, yeah. We were talking about people's reluctance for change or yep. something like that. Yeah, that's a huge uh, difficulty too. Um, a lot of around this improvement is around getting a team together, involving people in the work and in the improvements, so it doesn't feel like it's being thrown on them or thrust on them, but they're part of coming up with the solution because uh, they're the ones if you're People who are changing, they're the ones who are going to experience the benefits, or if it doesn't go well, the consequences of that. So we definitely want people involved in that so they can make the best choices. And you're going to get the best answers, too, when you involve all the people who are affected. Yeah? Well, speaking of involvement, I thought it was interesting that some people from the outside came in to observe the operation and bring their ideas. Yeah. And some of this is just concepts that they've never been introduced to or exposed to before. and so. Everybody's working really hard. It's just not, there's easier ways to do that work uh, once you kind of look at it from a flow standpoint or efficiency, right? So sometimes it just needs that kind of introduction or uh, coaching, we call it, from outside, just to get started or see things differently that you kind of get ingrained in that process and you think this is the best we can do. Uh, so you're kind of introduced to a different way. Yeah? How it seems easy to understand when you're looking at a process that is that's like that, like 
cars or boxes of food. And when you're dealing with a process that involves people and their motivations and their choices, that it gets, it seems like it would get quite a bit more tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely if your process did not involve a tangible item, one of the first things we try to do is figure out how can we make that visual? Because when it's hidden behind the computer or in the network or in the systems, you can't see the, the stuff piling up. You can't see the back and forth on your computer as easily as you can someone walking that distance. So one of the first things is how do you turn that electronic work into visual? So put it on a board or put sticky notes that represent things in the process. So multiple people can look at it and see, see the waste, see the process, first of all. So that's a really important piece is what can you do to visualize your work if that's not something that's not as tangible as this? So, so the key takeaways here were uh, they got the group together, they observed first before they just came in and gave answers, they watched the process. It took some times. They noticed that there was a waste that they're trying to get more families fed. They wanted to address the problem of running short. So they figure out a way to get more boxes on the truck. Then they also, um, they went in and looked at uh, the way in which they're packing the boxes. And they said there are a lot of people caring and struggling with that process. What if we set up a little conveyor belt system and they stay there and just pack the boxes in and then have someone else in charge of making sure they don't run out of supplies. And so there's less travel and movement and carrying things, potentially dropping stuff and struggle. And so a lot of cool uh, improvements from there. So we'll, we'll expand on this. So there's a long history with, I mean, this is not a, a new thing. It's actually been around many, many decades. Probably got really popularized in the 80s when people started to notice that uh, the Japanese automobile manufacturing uh, was surpassing and beating a lot of the U.S. manufacturers. And they're trying to figure out what's going on over there. Um, and they traced it back to the history of after World War II, they were trying to rebuild their economy and the uh, U.S. actually sent over some quality experts like Dr. Deming and Joseph Drawn, and they brought expertise. They also studied Ford in the early 1900s and how they were revolutionized manufacturing. Uh, and then they had their own internal experts. Jeo Shingo and Taiichi Ono, who worked at Toyota, and they were looking at ways to be uh, very efficient because they had no resources to pull from. They had to turn the materials into a product quickly. They had no money, no one would lend them money. They had to bring in all their materials outside their island. So through necessity, they, they came up with this method, and that was the term that got described. They watched this Toyota production system and realized they're running very lean, much leaner than the US automakers. What, what's the secret? And there's tangible things that they notice, but at the heart of it is really the, the way in which they tackle problems. It's completely different than, than a lot of organizations. They're very open about it. He said in the video, outside Toyota, problems can have a negative connotation, like a bad thing. And I think that's a pretty common experience we have, um, is we don't like to talk about problems or bring up problems. Because we're afraid of getting in trouble or getting yelled at or Get penalized, yeah. You know what I find interesting in the, I, I, I'm a cutter by trade, and the difference between what a lot of manufacturers do is they put raw ingredients together. Where meat, the meat industry is literally the composition, eating carcasses, mm -hmm. and I think that's the same process that they've learned is what's the quickest way to take 
a carcass from a hole or a half mm -hmm. down to stakes or whatever. Yeah. And that's what makes it easy for me to understand the lean concept. Mm -hmm. it's, it's something that on both sides of the tracks are. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and so a lot of this is around looking at what are the steps it takes to do the tasks that are being done, and how do I get it all the way from the person asking for it until it's finished? And what we find a lot of times is it gets hung up at various points in the process for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's uh, I'm juggling too many things, or I'm trying to do too much at once, or I'm batching work, and we'll talk about that a little bit too. But, so there are some actual principles there that actually will help, and I'll go through that. But there's also a culture and a mindset that goes with this. So it's, it's one thing just to have the tools, but you also have to have the support and the culture to support it. So, there, so it's, a, it's a hodgepodge of various different improvement methodologies that have been kind of pushed and combined together. Um, in the late 70s, early 80s, a lot of the Japanese books were being translated into English, actually here in Portland, um, by a group called Productivity Press and Norman Bodick. And he started to bring some of these concepts to the US through the English translations. Then there's a research team at MIT that went over and did this study and it really determined that they were doing things in half the time, half the inventory, half the workers, twice as fast, twice as high quality. Everything was, was double better than what the competition that they studied. They actually set up a plant, a GM and um, Toyota went together in the 19, early 1980s and worked together and they took the worst performing GM plant down in Fremont, which is the current Tesla facility, and they had shut it down. They rehired like 80% of the same workers, <laughs> they implemented the same system, and it turned it into the number one performing plant in their, uh, out of all their facilities, just by implementing a different culture and system. So there's this history has been kind of expanding. And so a lot of manufacturers do have a little bit of background on these concepts, but once you start looking at government agencies and small businesses and film and entertainment industry and um, I mean banking and healthcare it's there, there's all these same concepts are at play and so some of these concepts have been around 100 years but uh, sometimes it just hasn't been exposed to people so that was part of the um, motivation to try to reach this audience, just kind of introduce these concepts that they're not brand new, they've been very established and very um, successful, but outside of a manufacturing setting, they haven't had as much exposure yet. So these are the two pillars, and I think these are really important. Um, first one is that it's continuous improvement and that you're never done. So sometimes people say, well, we did some improvement last month. Okay, great, what are you doing this month, right? It never ends, and once you get okay with that fact that there's always gonna be problems, it's just what is the next one we need to tackle and work on, that it changes your mindset a little bit about it. And so there's a couple things here. Challenge means that we're, we have something we're striving for. If we don't know where we're going, it's gonna be really hard to make improvements because we don't know which direction to go. Kaizen is this idea that I mentioned in the video is of this continuous improvement mindset that we can make small improvements every day. It doesn't have to be, oh, we need an automated line to pack all the boxes. They took the same people, same things, they threw in a conveyor belt, pretty low technology, uh, and they made it much better. So small incremental improvements. And then go and see for your own eyes what's going on. Don't sit in the conference room or at your desk 
and make decisions, go talk to the people where the problems are happening and see firsthand and ask for ideas and input from the people who actually do the work. Which kind of leads into the next piece is respect for people. It's much more respectful is to include people into that discussion than saying, oh, I'm the manager or I'm the boss, I should have all the answers and I'm going to tell people what to do. That doesn't work very well. At least not where people are happy and feel empowered in their work. And we do this in teams. So it's not an individual going off and making decisions. It's everyone working together to find good solutions to a problem. And there's compromise that has to take place too. Sometimes the answer is I need to take on more work because I'm going to save you much more time in the future. If, I, if I'm already in this program and I find out that I can add these two fields off the system and that saves you 10 minutes of looking up that same number later, that's the right answer. That is better overall for everybody. So it, it might actually make your time, your work longer, but you're saving more time for somebody else. That's a good improvement. Even though it seems like, well, this is gonna hurt my productivity a little bit. The goal is to make the whole system run for the customers. So making sure we're always thinking about the customers. Does that make sense? So those are some of the pillars that you wanna keep in mind. Always kind of revert back to these is, you know, do we have the right goals and objectives? Are we thinking about small incremental improvements? Are we going to look at the problem and talking to people who actually do the work? Are we res being respectful? Not saying, who messed up? But what's wrong with our process that allowed you to make this mistake? And assuming that everyone's here trying to do a good job. And then how do we work together as a team to do that? So if you keep those principles in mind, you can always revert back to those when you're struggling to figure out how do I tackle this particular problem? So these are the five principles and think about it as kind of a process flow to how to improve our process. Let's start with the first one up here called value. Value is what your customer or stakeholder or end user or recipient, it could be the residents, it could be uh, an actual customer. Um, what do they think is value? What do they want? And we make assumptions all the time about what we think they want. And this means go talk to them and verify. You know, we provide you these artifacts. We, we send out this report to you. We deliver this product or service to you. Tell us what you think. Are you happy with it? Is it what you want? Maybe it made sense five years ago, but now things might have changed. So first thing is, before we go any further, we need to verify that the customer and end user or recipient is getting what they want. No more, no less. Because if we're doing more, it's gonna slow us down. And they're not gonna care about that extra stuff. Uh, I give the example of just like an email. If you're a manager or somebody says, can you give me an update on one of the activities you're working on? And you sit there and you pound out a 10 paragraph summary of your project. And you send it to them and they said, whoa, I, I thought you were just giving me like two sentences. So if you had had that discussion up front, you could have <coughs> determined what is value to them and clarified what exactly the expectation was. And then you, instead of you spending an hour on this perfectly well-written out lengthy summary, you could have cut that down from an hour to 10 minutes, gave them a very quick update, and then the manager didn't have to read through the whole thing 
to pull out the two bits of information that they wanted. So it take an hour and a half process for both people total, and you cut that down to maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And everyone gets what they want, and we're not wasting time. So the first thing is let's not do stuff that no one cares about. Okay? And don't assume. Go talk to your customers and end users and, and stakeholders and verify these things. Because if you get that wrong, if you get this wrong, you're going to spend a lot of time doing processes that they don't care about. Or you're missing the things that they do care about and you're not even including in your process. Does that make sense? Okay, so it all starts with kind of the end user recipient of what you're doing. Whether you're delivering a document or sending an email or giving out a report or delivering a box or providing advice or doing research, there's a recipient for that. So when we see these types of things in our process, it highlights that these could be probably non-value added because they usually don't result in good things for the customer. So there's an acronym called Tim Woods. This describes eight different types of waste you can see and observe in a process. So let's start with the first one here, T. T is for transportation. So we saw this in the video. Someone was walking back and forth with a box, right? All that walking is just taking time. You know, it takes about two seconds, or every two steps takes about a second. And a rough, rough estimate, right? So if I'm walking 100 steps, that's time that is slowing down the process. If I don't have to walk as far, then that's time I can save and get more work done. Because usually you're not walking and then doing something with your process or writing things. Well, some people are writing an email and walking, but that's not very safe. <laughs> so sometimes you can try to be a little uh, multitasking, but it may not be the most best way to do that. So most of the time, the, the transportation time is not improving the product or service that you're doing. It's just, delay, it's just taking up time. So we try to figure out ways to cut down the walking and travel. But transportation could also be moving up items, routing emails around to find the right recipient who should answer that question. And that's causing delays in the process. Okay? Next one is inventory. So think about this as, it could be the physical inventory of why there's so many boxes here, how many, why there's so many pallets here. If, we, if it's stacked waiting, that means we don't need it right now, so why did we get it so early? And also think about your backlog in your inbox. That's kind of like inventory. So you have unread emails right now piling up. That's your little inventory stash. And that creates stress. And the more that are there, the longer it takes to get through that pile. And so, Somebody who sends an email later today is going to have to wait for all the other emails to get looked at before it gets around uh, to theirs. So it causes delays and waiting in the process. And if you're physically buying things, what happens is you have to, I see this a lot with people buy in bulk. So they'll, they'll say, all right, I can get a good deal on this, but I'm going to buy more than I need right now. And so that might seem like a good deal, but we also have to weigh that against how much space is that going to take up? in our area. Do I need a bigger space and bigger building to house all that extra stuff? Um, and then that's usually going to take more money out of your bank account or out of the business account to hold on to that inventory because you paid for it. But you don't need it right now, so it's sitting there just kind of collecting dust. I mean, it could be in the bank gaining interest. And then there's a risk that I, I might run out of this, or um, 
there might be changes and this stuff isn't even needed anymore in the future. We're gonna change our process around. You have an example? Well, no, I, and it's, is it perishable? Perishable, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Look, I got three dozen bananas for 10 cents each. What a, what a deal. But at the end of the day, if I end up tossing a whole bunch of the bananas away, did I actually save money? And then I had to have a huge shelf dedicated for the bananas, so. So you gotta look at the long-term impacts of, of the inventory. So that, but that creates a backlog as well in our process. <clears throat> and so this can be an area to look at to say, where I see big backlogs of inventory, maybe that's uh, where a problem is nearby. There's something holding it up like a bottleneck in the process. So some, this can be used to help us identify areas to focus on for improvement. Motion would be like activity at your own workspace. So on your computer, if you're having to click this program and then click this file, open it up, um, or change it to a different format, go to this screen, log into this pro uh, computer screen, uh, upload a file, save it, and then you gotta go over here and update a database that you did that, and then you go back to your email program. That's all motion. And then at the end of the day, you say, what is actually, what am I trying to get out of this process? And is all those steps in motion, is that even helping me? Can I streamline that somehow? Because that's taking time. Or it could be something physical. I'm turning around and grabbing something over and over again. I was watching a campus mail, mail room, and they had, um, what they would do is they'd scan a package, and then behind them was the printer, so they'd scan the package, and then they'd turn around, grab the label off, and then, um, flip the box over and then put the label on it. And then they did that just all day long, just turning around and kind of like, why don't you just move the printer in front of you so you can just go from here to here to here. So that's, mo that's motion. And people don't, they get so used to that process, they don't even realize they're doing it. So someone kind of looks at it from a new perspective. Uh, waiting, just waiting for decisions to be made, waiting for approvals, waiting for someone to get back from their break or from vacation. Um, that always, just think about the end user and the customer. They're waiting through all those delays. And you might say, well, I'll get to that on Monday. And, but that's, you know, the clock's counting even on the weekends, right? So, um, or I'll get to it in the morning. But it's still, there's eight hours or 10 hours, or 12 hours or 16 hours of time between when you leave work and get to your work in the morning. The customer's experiencing that. They're waiting through that whole time. So we're just gonna be conscientious of the impact we're having on the process. Overprocessing is why we started with value because a lot of times we find out we're doing things that the customer doesn't care about. And we're going above and beyond what they want and they don't care. So why are we keep doing it? Because this could take us an extra 20 minutes or 30 minutes of work and they don't even um, appreciate that extra work we put into it. So once we realize that, it's good. We can stop doing that extra stuff because they don't really care about it. Maybe we, during that discussion we find out they'd rather us do a couple other things. So we just swap out the type of thing we're doing. You know, I need that report, but honestly, that six-page report, I really only need this little section. And what I'd love to see is actually two other sections added so cut out 10 of these sections and replace it with two of them. I still save time and I give them exactly what they want. So this can be some quick wins right there. Overproduction is working ahead of things too early, which means it creates inventory. 
That means that I'm done, but I'm not ready to send it off to the end user yet. And that means it's vulnerable to being changed or something gets updated or, hey, that, you know, I need to do an update for uh, my manager next week. And I'm going to put together a PowerPoint slide deck. Well, if you do it too early, what happens is the information becomes outdated or maybe the meeting gets delayed or canceled. And then you spend all that time getting ready for it and it didn't actually happen or got pushed out and then you have to redo it again anyways. So sometimes we find out we do things too early and we have to rework it because it becomes outdated or stale. So we want to do things just in time, not too early and obviously not too late either. Defects uh, like mistakes and errors, that's something we want to consider and think about. Obviously if, if we have mistakes and that gets to our customers they're not too happy about that. So we want to uh, increase the confidence that they have in our work. But it also creates delays in our process. We have to go fix it. So we have to do it a second or third time. And we should try to do things right the first time. And try to find problems as quickly as possible. So we don't, they don't propagate throughout the whole process. And the last one is skills. Do we have the right people in the right seats doing the right type of job? This person's really outgoing, but they're in the back where nobody gets to talk to them. And this person's not very good with customers and they're front facing. I don't know if that's a good match. They may be better in a more technical role or kind of working on their own. So, and some people have a marketing degree and they don't do anything with marketing and other people have an engineering degree and they're not doing anything related to engineering. And how do we get people lined up so that they can maximize the skill sets they have? We all have strengths and weaknesses with our skills. So trying to match people up, and, and you got to know people's backgrounds and skills and put them in the role where they can be successful. I'm sure we know of examples where people have been, you know, struggled in one role and flourished in a different role just because that wasn't a good fit for their skills. That's a waste too, yeah. Um, almost all of these on the sustainability lens, making changes here are going to make your business or your organization more sustainable too. Like reducing food waste, reducing inventory, um, defects, overproduction, all these things are have an environmental cost as well as a, a work cost and a, a financial cost. Yeah, absolutely. And so usually what we start with improvement is you have some kind of goal or metric you're trying to improve. And then you start looking at the process <coughs> through this lens and say, does my process have these things in place? And almost every, every process does to some extent. And then just start saying, how do we chip away at some of these wastes? Because they're probably not what the customer really wants. They're, they're slowing us up or causing rework or extra time in our process. And to Greg's point here, each of these wastes, there's an environmental <coughs> impact to go along with it. So if I overproduce and I have something that is perishable, it can go bad. And then I have to toss it somewhere. Hopefully I compost it if it's food. But a lot of times I have to pay for uh, <coughs> going into the trash or landfill, uh, and then I have to reorder more, and that's extra processing and time and money, right? Inventory, I have to heat cool, heat and cool the space and light the space, and so I got to pay more in the utilities for that extra space to hold stuff that I don't need right now. That doesn't make much sense. And the transportation might need extra packaging. To move it long distance, I have to package it up more to protect it during the transportation. So either I get things closer together so it has to go a shorter distance and I don't have to do as much packaging, um, 
or I look for other ways of, of using fuel or finding more cleaner fuels to use because that has an environmental impact too. If there's defects, I might have to throw away certain items because they're not any good anymore. That adds to my landfill costs. And waiting can cause delays. Um, I know like in healthcare, that's a huge thing. When processes take longer, the quality of that process goes down. So surgeries that take longer than they're supposed to have higher rates of issues and complications. And so time is a huge element to our processes that can, as they get longer, they can actually increase the chance of something going wrong or the quality of the process doesn't go as high as, high as it could. So any questions about the different wastes or the impacts of these wastes? In the, yeah. I do have a question. Okay. Are we to assume that Mr. Tim Woods did that whole program? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is no Mr. Tim Woods. Oh, okay. <laughs> a mystery person that uh, is, is waste in your process. So look for him in your process. <laughs> Any questions about those different waste terms? <coughs> Transportation, inventory, motion, waiting, overproduction, overprocessing, defects, skills. Just an acronym to try to help you remember. Kind of interesting when you use the waste, the last letter, and when you use healthcare. I saw a video some, a couple years ago about how the healthcare industry critique their whole surgery by going to NASCAR, or I think the Indy 500. Yeah. And they looked at how they did changing tires and that whole thing, and they said, we need to use that model. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen like a pit crew, how fast yeah. they are? Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and that's an example of how it's setup reduction. That means how do I change from one process to the next one or to complete that task? And they've got it dialed in down to seconds. Yeah. Um, and it can be done. It takes a lot of work, but you can turn processes around from one task to another very quickly if you focus on that. There are very good techniques for doing that. Okay, so that's the first thing is you kind of look for those eight ways. If, that, if you leave with nothing else today, you just start noticing and, and observing those wastes, and it could be at the grocery store when you're waiting in line saying, I wonder what's wrong with the process that I'm waiting in this extra long line here. Uh, maybe they haven't cross-trained very well, their teams, to jump in and help out. Um, how come they ran out of my favorite item on the shelf? That seems like a defect, and that doesn't make me happy as a customer. So you'll start to notice this. Sometimes it can be a little frustrating to start you can't unsee the waste in the processes, but that's the first step is to start to notice these things in your process. The second piece of this is a value stream, and what we look at is what are the to all the steps it takes to deliver that value from collecting the, uh, so when the, you get an order or a request, it could be an email request from uh, a coworker, it could be a customer pays you for some service or product. Until you deliver that product, you look at the total time from request to delivery. And the goal is to make that whole process streamlined, not any one individual step. So what a lot of times the biggest challenge is that a lot of the processes are set up to make individual steps look really efficient. And you have to break that. It's not about an individual department or group being efficient. It's about the whole process being efficient which means individual pieces of this are gonna be inefficient at times, and that's okay. 
because you're focusing on the customer experience or the end user's experience. So sometimes uh, in the process improvement we say it's okay for people to be doing nothing. In fact, sometimes that's the best answer is don't do anything. Just sit there and, and it's very counterintuitive to say, I'm gonna have a worker not do any work. The answer is yes, because they can do more damage by working ahead too early on stuff and they have to fix or rework later than just doing nothing. That's, again, very counterintuitive, but if you think about it from the perspective of we shouldn't start because it can create more work for us later, then it does make more sense to wait until you have the right information or the right decisions to move forward. So that's the focus, is to streamline the process for everybody in the process, not for one individual person or group. So this is an example of a value stream map this is usually done as a team. You get a group of people together who represent all the processes, and for the first time you bring them together and say, let's talk about how this all works. Because most of them only see their little piece of the process. And so we might spend a couple days going through and mapping this out, but it's very eye-opening for people to say, wait, you're doing that process too? We do the same thing. Why are we both doing that task? One of us just stopped doing that. That doesn't make any sense. And you need that information later on in the process? Well, I can provide that to you. I didn't know that's important to you. <coughs> and you only process these things on Friday. Why do you wait until the end of the week to process all this stuff? Why can't we do that every day and process it and move things through our process a little faster? Because um, I, when I get these, I get them in a big pile, and it creates havoc and stress. and. I end up making mistakes because I'm trying to juggle too many things at once. So you get everyone together to look at the whole process, and then you say, how do we make that whole process better? Here's an example, and this is not that unusual. <coughs> a process takes 68 days, and only 15 minutes of actual work is needed to do the work. And I'm, I'm, joke, I'm not joking, that is a very typical result, is we'll find that the ratio of the actual work it takes to get it done versus the total time it actually takes the two different numbers. And if you looked at your processes, looked at how long does it take to respond to your customer, and then how much work does it actually include, that's a very typical ratio. It's a very small number, 1%, 2% of the total time. And we want those numbers to be closer. We want it to be, if it takes 15 minutes, maybe it takes an hour to do the whole process. That's a little bit more typical ratio we'd like to see. So this is really eye-opening when people go through this exercise. First of all, they've never even met people in other parts of the process. And then secondly, they realize how broken the process is from the customer's perspective. Has anyone been through a value stream mapping or mapping exercise like that, cross-functional teams together? A little bit of one? Um, yeah, it's, it's really powerful exercise. A lot of companies start with this. They pick a, a major product or service that they offer and they value stream map it. Um, and it does take some time. It goes back to the question of where am I going to get this time to work on this thing? Well, if you do it well, you're going to regain and recoup that time very quickly and hopefully be faster. In, a, in two months or three months from now, where are you going to be? You're still going to be struggling if you don't make the time now. If you do this well, you might end up way better off at that point and you might be doing way faster. So even if you fall behind a little bit during this improvement time, if you do it right, you should catch up and surpass where you would be. 
So it is an investment, but um, it's usually be a very successful investment. So I'm not going to go through all the technical details on that. Um, but this is an example. And so all we've done is, see the green? That is the actual work. And the red is the time where there's waiting and delays and hold up in the process. So let's just cut out the delays and the waiting through by looking at the process differently. And we haven't changed the green at all. I haven't made anyone go any faster. It's the same amount of work. It's just going to hand off more smoothly to the next person because we're actually in better communication with each other. And we've set up our processes to flow a little bit better. So it's the same amount of work, but we can take a process that takes a whole day down to one hour. Just by rearranging the way we do the work and thinking about it as a whole system, not as my individual efficiencies. Okay, so that's very reasonable to do as a kind of a first pass is to cut out a lot of the delays. And so the third piece here is called flow. How do we get the process to flow smoothly, like we talked about there? When it goes and it sits on someone's desk for three days, that's not flow. When it goes to an operation and it piles up and it sits there in a pallet for, for four days, that's not flow. So how do we identify these and then get things to flow a little bit better? <laughs> uh, so the thing about the concept is once I start working on something, I should try to complete it all the way through without setting it down. Every time I set it down and work on something else, I've disrupted the flow. And so how do we stay focused on those types of things? <clears throat> so these starts and stops in our process. Oh, I can't finish that because I need an answer from so-and-so and they're gone on vacation. I'll have to put it off to the side. And then you work on something else. Oh, I don't have a way to access that folder, so I'm gonna set that one off to the side. And what I'm doing is I'm building up inventory and now I'm having to juggle many different things and I forget about that one and I forget to contact that person and all of a sudden it's been three weeks. Where's that for? Oops, I forgot. Uh, it was just in this pile of things that I'm managing and juggling. So once you pick it up, try to get it all the way through the process. That's the goal, to get flow. But usually it's caused by this batching or personal efficiency motivations. So let's do a little exercise here. Um, I need groups of five. So I think the tables of four, we got three, three. Okay. So we need a note card person on one end and a stopwatch person on the other end. Make sure you got that. Okay, use a good. Okay, so the colors designate a right-hander and a left-hand signature. Is that the first person with the cards? No. So the person with the card doesn't do anything to hand them out but they control what gets handed out, okay? So you'll take the three cards, the first person, and you'll sign it, probably do your right hand three times, on each, once on each card, and then you go back and sign it left hand on each card, once each, okay? Not yet, not yet, I'll tell you when to start. Then you'll pass the three, all three cards, don't set, you have to set them all in a group of three to the next person. So keep it in groups of three at all times. The next person will add their signature in the middle. Same thing. So you'll end up doing six total signatures with each set. Okay? The third person will do the same thing. On the far right, they're going to add their <coughs> signatures, both right and left-handed. Okay? Then they'll deliver to the end person, the timer, or the customer. And the customer will write down the time it took 
when they receive the first, first of those batches. And there'll be four deliveries. And so when the first person gets done with the cards, you can issue three more. And then when they finish those, issue three more until you run out, okay? So everyone should have 12 cards total. There would be four groups of three cards each. Does that make sense? Take a nice, easy pace. This is not a speed race. We just keep a, a, a pace that you can maintain. All right, so this is not trying to make you go faster. Just sign, the, sign your first name only. Yep, yeah. How legible does it need to be? Um, can't be like a scribble. You should be able to tell it's your name. Okay. So try your best with your opposite hand to make it legible that you can tell it's your name. And then the customer just verifies that there should be six signatures on each card. Three left-handed, three right-handed from three different people. And the customer has a stopwatch. Customer has a stopwatch. And so for round one, we're going to get four different times because there's going to be four different deliveries. Does, everyone, does that make sense? This, yeah, as soon as we say start, start the stopwatch, and then um, get laps as it goes along. So keep a continuous running total of the times. So the final delivery will be the end time for everything. Yeah. <laughs> Did you understand? Yes, they're just going to keep the timer running. However you want to start. Yeah, just keep it consistent throughout the whole exercise, okay? However you want to sign your name. Okay? So it's not a speed. You're going to be competing against yourself, so don't worry about what the other teams are doing. Yeah. Uh, he's asking all these questions as an example of over-processing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, potentially. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Any other questions? Did it make sense? <laughs> So round one, we're just going to run through in groups of three. So only you have to pass only in groups of three. You can't pass them. All right. Okay. Is everybody ready? Is there we stop um, doing things in a batch? Um, because you might say, well, it's easier if I knock out all my left hand with a bunch at a, at a time, uh, and I don't have to switch my hand as much. Um, so it seems pretty efficient to do it this way, um, and this happens in a lot of processes. So I'm going to wait till the pile gets large, and then I'm going to blow through that pile really quickly. Um, so let's try a different method and see how that changes up our times a little bit. So we're going to do the exact same thing. So send all the cards back to the beginning again. Flip over the cards so you have a blank side that you haven't written on yet. So we're just going to use the back side this time. We're not trying to waste paper. Okay, so you should have 12 cards. Make sure you have all 12 cards. So this time, you're going to issue one card at a time. You're not going to wait for three. You're going to send out one card. They're going to work on it. And then you just send one at a time through. So you're actually going to issue out 12 times, and the end person is going to get 12 different deliveries. So there's spots on that sheet for 12 recordings. All right, and so we're going to see what happens to those times when we do it as one at a time versus three at a time. Okay, same exact right hand, left hand, same exact uh, task, except you're not going to hold up those other two cards before you pass it along. You're going to take one, pass it along, take one, pass it along. Does that make sense? So everything stays the same except you can pass only one at a time instead of three. 
Is everybody ready? Dealing cards now. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Ready. Begin. It's a very important relation because if I wouldn't give them the cards, take time to give the cards would slow them down too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you have to know when they need the next card. Yes. Yep. And it was more frequent there. So there it does create a little bit different work somewhere else. But if the goal is to try to get, and think about this as a, a document, someone's requesting assistance and they fill out a form and it has to go through three departments. And that signing was your review of that document. And, and when we batch them up into piles and then work on the piles, the, the person requesting assistance takes much longer. If we do it one at a time and say, I'm gonna look at this document right away and pass it along, they get the answer they need quicker. Um, and you actually get through more of the documents faster. And it's, it's not intuitive. This is, it takes a while just so, as you're thinking about your process, think about maybe I can't do one at a time, but maybe I can go from 10 at a time to five at a time, or five at a time to three at a time. So the goal is to try to keep making those batches smaller and smaller as much as possible it'll highlight waste in the process for you. Any other questions about, about what we just went through? This is just kind of a real simple exercise to try out, but it's pretty eye-opening when I first learned about that method. It did not seem intuitive. They actually, there's a video that has people stuffing envelopes like for a wedding, and they fold all the document, all the papers, and then they put in the envelope, and then they write the address, and they stamp it. And then when you do it is fold, shove in the envelope, address, and stamp, they get through more of those documents at once. And those are ready to be mailed out right away instead of you putting this whole pile of items through. So it's, it's a little counterintuitive. But. Okay. So let's watch a little video on one of the improvement methods that's pretty popular called 5S, and then we'll take a break here. Okay? So this method is called 5S, and it stands for five steps of a process to organize your workplace. And this can be done in a physical workspace, <coughs> it can be done in your garage, in your closet, in your kitchen, at your desk. It can also be done on your file folders, in your hard drive, and on a shared drive. And so look at the steps of the process they go through, and this is a, a method you can follow to get better organization around your workplace. Are you interested in learning more about Lean and Six Sigma? Or are you looking to expand your existing skills to apply them to environmental impacts at your work or in the local community? Check out our free online course called Lean Six Sigma and the Environment on thinkific.com. We'll teach you about the Lean Forms of Waste and Waste Walks, which stands for Water, Air Emissions, Solid Waste, Toxins, and Energy. We'll go over examples of reducing electricity and solid waste teach you how to involve your facilities in environment safety and health personnel. We'll provide guidance on how to green your 5S and lean Kaizen events and many other tools specific to finding environmental opportunities. Learn more at leansixsigmaenvironment.org. I, yeah. I did the pantry. I put the labels on the pan. This is where the frying pan goes. This is where baking powder goes. Because I, you know, struggled a little bit with my significant other to put the things in the same spot regularly. Hopefully, you work together as a team, and you can say, "Honey, I rearranged your dresser drawers. I hope you like it." I won't go over very well. No.
Yeah. But you can do it together as a team. Then. Just the labels uh, and pictures for my preschooler, actually, because I had a lot of trouble getting her to clean up her things. And just having picture labels so that she knows where things go, it's yeah. so much easier for her. Nice. Yeah. Great. I really like the Marie Kondo method of organizing clothing and yep. closets and dresser drawers. And that has helped my son, too, who's a teenager who needs all help he can get <laughs> choosing his outfit. So very important to see where everything is and figure out you know what's clean and what's dirty and going through and like removing all the old clothes that you haven't worn in a couple of years I think a year so like two years or something like that but you can even do a one year and then just a little plug if you're gonna throw out all your old clothes we're having a clothing swap Saturday yes. at the Gresham Library 10:30 to 1. <laughs> Yes, try to find a good home for all your stuff. Yes, don't throw it away. Um, but yeah, uh, start at home and practice some of these techniques. Then you'll feel more confident bringing it to work. You said, I've already gone through it. This is look what I did at my house. And I save time and organize it. So again, this is a really good starting point for improvement because it gets people together, gets them up and active, physical, and then they can start to envision a new way of doing it. And it gets them excited for more improvements from there. Because they're like, ooh, it feels nice now in this space. It's freed up. I can actually set up the process the way I want to because we have the room now. We've gotten rid of this stuff. And it's organized. And I know the color coding matches. So red means this. And we all know what red means now. It's not red in this department and blue in that department, green in this department. OK? Why don't we take a 10-minute break? And we'll start up at. Um, So at 10.45, with our five principles, we were talking about the element of flow. And that's where we did the exercise to try to get the cards to flow more seamlessly through our process and back to our end customer. Then when we start getting that running pretty smoothly, what you'll find is sometimes you're flowing it too fast or too slow for what the customer needs. And so what we want to transition to is pull, where we wait and let the customer pull when they're ready for it. Sometimes we build our plans off of schedules that are way out in the future that we try to predict what's gonna happen. And then when we get really close to that time, it actually changes a lot. And that can cause a lot of disruptions in our process. So and instead, a poll system would be, tell me when you need that report and I'll deliver it to you within the hour. A push system is, I'm going to send you the report on the first of the month, whether you need it or not. Because what happens, someone goes on vacation and then they come back the next week and they said, oh, that report you sent me last week, can you add this week's data in or last week's data into that report and resend it to me? Because I didn't have our meetings because I was gone and I pushed out my meeting till next week. So when I work off a push, I delivered right on time per a plan but that plan changed. And now I'm being asked to go do that over again completely because I wasn't in alignment with when my customer actually needed that report. So it, it, that's what we're gonna switch to to make sure we're only delivering that need when they're ready for it. And like in the card simulation, when we're passing out the cards, you started to do that a little bit too. You didn't want to give too many cards at once because you wanted to wait until that person was done with the card and then you give them the next card. <coughs> and that's kind of like a pull system too. Same with what we saw with the two bin system in the video. 
you're pulling the replenishment of those items based on the bins sitting out there. You don't come in and fill up the bins whenever you're ready or on Mondays. You go around and check and when there's empty bins, you refill them at that time because they actually consumed those items. All right, so, so that's a transition we wanna make. And then if you don't get the signal that you're ready, then don't work on that item, go off and do something else with your time. All right, so that's what we're trying to get to is things change. What the plan was last week may not be the plan this week. And so we wanna be flexible in our process and say, I'm gonna make my process so efficient that I can give a response quickly when you need it, but only when you're ready for it. Okay, so flow is to make the process run efficiently. Pull is to wait for the signals, and that could be a visual signal, it could be a, a signal like an email, it could be a phone call. Okay, I'm ready for it, send it to me. And you got your process dialed in so quickly, it says, I can deliver that to you pretty quick, because I do it one at a time, and it flows through our process really quickly. But you gotta get this, the kinks worked out here first before you can really go here, otherwise, if your process is all over the place and you say, oh, you need that right away, oh, we're struggling to get that done, it's, it's gonna be messy. So you get the flow running smoothly, then you start to transition to pull. Okay, so there's different signals and triggers you can use in that process. But then you just wait for the signals to come through and you know what to work on. If you don't get the signal, if you don't have to work on it, go do something else. This is an example of a group, um, the business I used to work at. There was a yellow box that they started to use for um, a Kanban system or a, a pull system. And what this box would do is they would collect up these boxes and send them back to the supplier. That was the signal to the supplier that they should send more product. Now there was people working all the time trying to figure out a plan. Oh, we're gonna need this many items on these dates, and these would be predicted out six months, 12 months, two years in advance. But when we get down to it, how much do we actually need right now? It was, it varied a lot. Maybe we're having some technical problems. Maybe the customer is having technical problems. So <laughs> what they would say is, don't send us stuff until you get an empty box. And you fill up the empty box and send it back to us. That was the pull system. So I know the schedule said 10, but you're only getting six boxes back, only send six. And that means we don't have to keep as much inventory and we only get as much as we need because we're replenishing what we used. The nice thing too from the green benefit is I can reuse the packaging. So by maybe trying to cut out all the cardboard, I actually created a cool trigger system and reduced the environmental impact as well. So I can kind of use these in conjunction with each other that it, it had multiple benefits. Um, and then we could just work off of, just, just replace what we send you back. That's your schedule, that's your plan, okay? I don't have to be perfect on my predictions of what's gonna happen in the future. I could just respond to reality. And that means when the supplier says, oh wait, they didn't ask for all 10, they only needed six, maybe we shouldn't make 10 more, maybe you should wait and only make six more. <coughs> And maybe we should only six more components from our supplier. And so all the inventory starts to go down across the whole uh, supply chain process. And so you start lowering costs. I don't have to buy as much now. I can keep that money in the bank. I don't have to store it. So 
So it all has a ratcheting effect all the way back. And then perfection. This is a never-ending process. You're never done. You can't say, oh, I've leaned out my process. It's all good to go. That means you're not looking hard enough. And so no problem is a problem. That's a philosophy. If you say, we don't have any problems here, then that means uh, you're not really challenging your, your process very well. Um, sometimes what they'll do is say, let's take one person away and reassign them somewhere else. And now let's see where your next bottlenecks and problems are at in your process. And one thing improvement, never use this as a way to get rid of people. That will destroy your culture and the intent of this. This is an idea to say, how do we free up people so we can do more products and services for our customers and make them happier? You know, you might have said before, we, don't, we can't do that for you, sorry, we don't have enough people. Well, let's lean out our process so we can have enough people to give them what they want. That's the way you need to think about improvement. If you use it as a way to save money and cut jobs, this will not last very long. Because people will catch on to that really quickly. And do you think they want to participate and help possibly lean themselves out of a job? I wouldn't want to do that. I'd be hiding, oh, this takes me an hour to do. And this takes me all, oh, I'm going to do all week to do this. Um, because I'm afraid that if they find out the real numbers, then I might be out of a job. That's not what we're trying to do. Let's make it easy to do the right thing and give people <coughs> opportunities to move around and learn new skills and new um, and flexibility to jump into different jobs and help out in other areas. Do you, do you see companies where they reward <clears throat> like individuals that have found significant improvement? Yeah, I think on the team level, trying to come up with some ways. Um, some do some compensa compensation for that. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the best approach because what you get is people kind of picking projects with the best savings opportunities. Um, but some uh, recognition for people making big improvements to an organization, that should be rewarded in some way, whether that's stood up in front of a room, a little plaque, maybe it's a get a couple days off, some, some way of recognizing people um, if it is significant, I mean, I've had some projects that were very big cost savings, and there was some extra financial bonuses involved with that. But uh, it shouldn't be that shouldn't be the motivating driver for that. It should be about making the processes better, and then the benefits will come with that. But yeah, I've seen some recognition around that. But I would try to build it so that's not the motivation for people as to I'm going to get a percentage of the savings because you get people kind of cherry picking different areas to work on. It should be about customer experience and making the processes simpler and easier. So this is an example. So this one is where um, we were actually trying to cut out the clutter. You can see all these different stars represent different carts. And it was like a safety thing trying to navigate through here and it would take up space and they're kind of like, well, does this mean that we have a problem, that something's missing off the cart, or is that supposed to be there? It was very unclear. So we did some 5S stuff and some organization and we made parking spots. So at the end, when you're done, park it in the parking spot. You know, very simple, just a little marking on the floor. But that cleared up a lot of clutter. And then we realized, oh, we don't have enough parking spots. Maybe we have too many carts. In fact, we had 20 extra carts when we were done. We had room for about 30 of them and we had 55 or something like that. 
Well, it turns out they're actually going to replace all the carts. And they had an order out there for 55 new carts. And we said, oh, hold up, hold up. We only need 30. Only order 30 of those carts. And so that turned into like, they're 500 bucks a cart. So that was like $10,000 of savings because we went and organized and figure out how many do we actually need. And 30 is still a lot of carts, but um, so we saved all the material and, and the environmental impact of those 20 carts plus the cost savings right there. Just by having clear designation of where things go. Everything has a place and everything goes into its place. If it doesn't have a place, it's gonna find its place on a shelf, on the floor, wherever there's room, someone will make a space for it. Yeah. We found this with uh, waste bins in uh, offices. If you tape out where they're supposed to go, they don't migrate. And people, and you can keep your signage above and people will clearly sort and then you save on your waste expenses significantly. Yeah. But it's amazing how much materials will float around an office and nobody <laughs> knows where to go or they just stop recycling because it's not convenient anymore. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good one. Just having an area to say, this is where it belongs, where it belongs. and having a yeah. little circle. Say, this is where our trash belongs. Put it back, if it's not in this place, you can tell right away, wait, something's supposed to be here. There's a visual indicators that something's out of place. And that means there might be a problem. Why isn't it here? What's the problem that I need to find that caused that to be out of place? And then how, what, what can I do to help fix that problem? So that's the visual indicators make it obvious. So if there is a cart in the middle, now I can say, that's not supposed to be here. What's wrong with this? So it's helping you see problems much easier too. And maybe I can find it much faster than waiting to the end of the week and saying, why don't we meet our numbers? Or how come we were struggling to keep up? And why are we getting complaints? Well, we could have seen that coming on Tuesday if we had the visual indicators in the process. So I went to visit my mom. And she said it's okay to show these pictures. <laughs> this is our huh? Yeah, I should have, yeah. This is our sewing room. Dedicated room to sewing. And she's not that disorganized, really. She's pretty organized, but I was like, oh mom, this is uh, this is not uh, very organized. Um, so I'm here for a couple days. Why don't we put me to use? What can I do? So we sat down and we talked about what are you using this room for? What's the purpose of this room? And what, do you, what are the main tasks you do in this room? What are the products and services you deliver? Uh, we make quilts. Okay, great, anything else you do? Uh, sometimes we repair things. Okay, so once I understood the purpose of the room, then we, were back, we're back, we worked backwards and say, what is the process you go through? Well, I decide uh, I'm on a, um, a customer, um, a niece I wanna make a quilt for. Okay, great. So you pick a pattern and then you grab the material, and then how does it go through your process? You walk me through the process, and then from there we, just, we determined what the process flow should look like and how to cut down the inventory. And we went through all the material as a sort process, and I said, how many projects do you have going on? I said, oh, probably five or six. Um, I think it was more like 20 to 25 when we got done. <laughs> that are all various stages of completion, from all the way almost done to I just started and did a little work and then put it off to the side. So we said, okay, let's set some limits. Maybe we only have five projects going on at one time. Let's try to bring it down a little bit more manageable. And then what is your workflow? And where are the things you use most frequently? And what is your transportation and your motion? Um, what are your visuals in the process? 
And so after just one day, we came up with a new process where she could go from the ironing board uh, to the cutting uh, table you can't see and then to the sewing room. And it was kind of weird shape. It was in the middle of the room. And before she had everything on the edge of the room. I said, this is your room. You can set up any way you want to. Set it up for flow and efficiency. Don't set it up because it looks nice. So this is in the middle of the room, but it actually cut out a lot of travel. And then she could also watch TV on the other wall. And um, she sent me some pictures. She's maintained this. This is in the summer. So she sustained the improvements, which is a really hard part of, of getting organized, right? You can do this all the time, and then you come back six weeks later, and it's a mess again. So that's the hard part. But if you can set up a system and then manage the flow, then you can keep things a little bit more organized. So that's a home example. You can try these concepts. This is at Free Geek. How many of you have been to Free Geek before? Okay, quite a few. So they're a nonprofit in Portland. They refurbish laptops, computers, and this was their mobile device repair station. And so the people that worked there knew where everything was, or at least they said they did. I believe them. I think they did know where everything was at. But if you get a new person to come in and say, I need you to go fix an iPhone 7, um, they're going to have a hard time finding the cables and the tools and the supplies they need. So. We went through some of the principles. We talked about what is the purpose of this role, of this process area. They complained a lot about space. They were like backed up with shelving right behind them. They're, you can't see it, but there's basically like a wall of stuff right behind them. They felt cramped. So afterwards, they went through and they cleared out a bunch of stuff. And then they did start to organize this a little bit better. So it just created space and made things feel like a little bit more freeing. It didn't seem so chaotic. They could find things quicker because they weren't looking through stuff that shouldn't even be there. They got rid of broken cables and cords that don't work anymore and are on outdated uh, phones that they had. And they used to store all the phones in the, underneath here in a box. And they would rummage through the box to look for, oh, found the iPhone 4S. We laid them all out, went through all those and put them on a shelf and laid them out so they could see the entire stock of things that they could work with. And then the salesperson would come by and say, people want these and these and these. So it created a pull system Instead of, I like this and I like this and I think people might like this, they connected the sales team to the mobile device area. So that was some of the um, improvements that were done here. So let's take a couple minutes. What are some of the thing, key takeaways of some of the lean concepts we've talked about so far? Okay, so turn to your, your um, person next to you again. And you say, we've talked about a couple of different topics. So what are the things that stand out or uh, takeaways for you? Chair, something that they they talked about. Anyone want to share? Something they they discussed. Problems are just opportunities, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, Andrew from Birch, uh, over the last seven years, um, our donations, uh, large in part to a lot of you generous folks, um, have increased um, more than double. Uh, in, the same, in the same facility, um, same labor and everything. Uh, and one of the challenges that we have come up against on a regular basis is how do we change our processes to uh, more rapidly um, move through that product and get it to as many families as possible. 
Um, and that is, uh, it's an ever increasing challenge. Uh, and so more than anything, as I go through this, I just feel guilty. And, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's very helpful. Yeah, cool. Yeah, these are, those are important challenges to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. That's a good thing, right? Yeah. Got a lot of donations come in, how do I process those? So. Yeah, so we've been working with Restore and Gresham yeah. uh, a little bit already, so yeah. a lot of good ideas we've got around warehouse efficiency, sales floor, all those things. Applies a lot of things. Yeah. We have uh, a, a Y drive that I'm sure a lot of the city <laughs> And uh, it's got files on there from 10, 15 years ago, um, various naming conventions. Yeah, and then if we spend up, add up all the amount of time that we spend navigating through that to find files, it's just going to be insane. So oh, yeah. taking the time to really work on that, I think it's save a lot of time. That's the best kind of exercise is do that on your file drive. Sort out the files that don't belong, you know, um, organize it in a way that makes sense, more logical sense, because things evolve over time. And you're like, now this is part of a new program, but these files are all spread out throughout. Clean out, clean out the drive a little bit. There might be some technical things you want to do. Uh, standardize naming conventions, labels. Um, what do you call <coughs> customer or segment of your population? Everyone has 10 different names for it. Some abbreviate, some don't. Some use the old name, and that's kind of stuck. And you have to know all this stuff when you join the group. Oh, no, that means this, because that's what they used to be called. And, Confusing, it takes time, right? And we don't add it up because it's, oh, it's five minutes of my time and 10 minutes of this person, but across the whole organization, it could be hours and days worth of wasting time. Anything else? Yeah, I, I opened up saying I don't know why I'm here. I think I'm here for one reason. Okay. I get seven grandkids. Okay. So, okay, many of you guys have seen them, but my wife, she watches them probably three, four times a week. And when you walk into the house, literally, it looks like uh, a war-torn <laughs> house from a year to 13. And listening and just being a part of this, really, I'm going to go back today because my, my, my son and his wife's out of town for a day. So my wife is there. And I'm gonna say to each of the kids, give them specific responsibilities for their stuff, and see how that fits into just just the concept because it's it's interesting to hear and to see it now on a personal level or on a household level, totally different. <laughs> but that's something I think I, I can take and uh, apply at, at that level. Yeah, it's empowerment, right? Yeah. You guys organize it any way you want. Just but make it organized. Yes. And so they'll be very creative that way too. And they'll say, Oh, I like what this person's doing. I'm gonna copy that idea and they're gonna copy this idea. So yeah, it's great when you don't go in and try to pose it, say you yeah, have to do it this way. Say, how can you make this simpler so at the end of the day all the toys are put away, all the things are in this place, clothes are where they're supposed to be. And you give them that freedom to try different things. Another thing is important with this is people are going to fail. And you have to be okay and let them fail. Even if you see it coming. Say, I should say something, but they got to learn their own uh, and try things out. 
that's how people learn is by experimenting and trying things. But you gotta create an environment that it's safe to do that, and if it goes wrong, no big deal. We can change it, we can fix it. Then if people are, are willing to try it, they're not afraid to try it. Okay, great. So I wanna introduce Six Sigma concepts a little bit. Don't spend as much time on that. But some of you may be really interested in some of the topics around this, because it gets a little bit more into some more complexities. And the history of Six Sigma has a very similar path. It started um, officially in the mid-80s, but if you go back, some of the tools have been around for over 100 years. And so it's just evolved over time to be where it's at today. And most of the organizations do some kind of combined Lean and Six Sigma uh, methods because they each have its, their strengths. Um, so also Dr. Deming appears in a lot of the Six Sigma history. He's a very important, pivotal person. Uh, so if you never heard about him, he may be an interesting person to research. Uh, but he actually spent many decades in Japan, but he started in the US as a statistician and helped with a lot of the efforts during the wartime to increase productivity by using statistical methods. And then he went over and shared his knowledge with the Japanese and they embraced it and then they kind of took it and ran with it. Um, Motorola is responsible for kind of developing. They took all these tools and said, this is just too much for anybody to digest. Why don't we put it into more structure so it's easier to go through a step-by-step -step process, and I'll talk about that. They developed a Motorola University after a while when they had a lot of success. The reason they went down that path is they were getting beat by their Japanese com competition. Wait, the, these parts now, the TVs we're making, were getting beat out because the Japanese are more higher quality and less cost. What's going on here? Oh, and, and better quality, too. So they had to do something different. That was their reason for change. Uh, and then General Electric took it and ran with it when Jack Welch took over as CEO. And he claims they saved like $5 billion through their improvement efforts. It's a monstrous amount of money. Um, because they track all the savings. And, and what he said was really different. He said, if you want to move up in GE, you have to be a green belt level. Meaning, how can you lead change in the organization if you don't understand these tools and concepts? How can we expect your, your team to do this if you don't understand the concepts and tools? So that was really uh, powerful. There was a lot of focus on finances and certifications, and there's mixed you know, reviews on how, to, how that can be a driver. Um, but it has spread into many different industries over the last few decades. Again, a lot of these techniques start in manufacturing you have repeatable processes, very visual, but a lot of industries are realizing, oh, we can use these same concepts, just like with Lean. Uh, we have to tweak it a little bit for our industry and our purpose, but a lot of the fundamentals are still the same. So let's talk about those. So I like to use the analogy of golfing to describe something called the sigma levels. And that's, a, that's the word that people are really confused about. What does sigma mean? It's actually a Greek letter that represents um, S, and we use S in like mathematics and statistical terms to represent the standard deviation or the variation of a process. So it describes how good a process is in terms of its variation. So if you're a one sigma golfer and your requirements is to hit the ball past the, the bunker and the sand traps, but not too far that you get into the other sand trap, then this is the requirements of the goal. And if you're one sigma, that means you are not easily meeting those 
requirements. Sometimes you shoot the ball and hit the tee shot and it goes way past. Other times you hit it and it falls way short. And sometimes you get lucky and it lands in the middle. But it's pretty random and it's not consistent. And so in a one sigma process, 30% of the time you meet the outcomes and 70% of the time you don't. That's not a very good process. And you probably would not be a very good golfer. <laughs> this is your outcome. This is what probably my process is. A two sigma process gets a little bit better. You can see that the red arrows shrink down, less variation. It still only achieves 70% success, but it's better. And you can see that they're hitting more of the shots they're landing in the zone. So let's keep going. Three sigma process. Most of the shots are starting to land inside of the zone. That's good. 93%, in fact. A four sigma gets up to 99%. You might say, that's exceptional. Maybe, depends on what your process is. If it's how many mails, how many pieces of mail get delivered to houses, if there's a 1% failure rate, how many people are gonna miss their mail? <laughs> Thousands of people won't get the mail. That's a horrible percentage if you're talking about some high volume like that. Or if it's bags that actually make it to their final destination through the airport. 99%, that means a couple people on the flight will lose their bags. Every flight. That's not a very good percentage. So they said, well, 99% isn't good enough. Maybe we need to go to five sigma, 99.9%. Well, that's better. And you can see they're not only are they doing better, that they're staying away from the edges too. They're hitting more in the center and they're not getting even close to the limits, just in case. We just don't want to have that uh, risk of being that close. I don't want to be anywhere near those sand traps. Or six sigma, 99.9997%. For some processes, we need to be that good. Like airline flight safety. I hope that's a more than Six Sigma performance uh, process. I think it is. So that's good. We want those processes to be that high of success rate. So the main thing is not to say, I gotta take all my processes and get them to, 90, to that high a percentage or Six Sigma performance. But maybe if I'm at one Sigma, how can I get to two Sigma? And if I'm at two Sigma, how do I get to three Sigma? So it's taking wherever you're at and trying to get better by making the process more consistent. And how do you do that? You have maybe documentation of how that process works. And you train people on that method. And you enforce that consistency. But not to a point where it makes it locked in that I can't change it. You should always be able to say, if you've got a better idea, let's hear about it. But until then, we need to do it the same way. So it doesn't matter who comes to us, they get the same results. And that's why you see the fast food places. You can go to any location and you can get pretty consistent results they've standardized how that does. The consistency and the variation is the same. Okay? And you can compare different processes. I mentioned like tax advice, probably not a very good process, especially if you call up somebody on the phone that you don't know and say, what should I do? How should I fill this out? They're probably gonna give you not great advice because they don't know your situation. <clears throat> or baggage handling. Uh, this is restaurant billing. I go to a coffee shop pretty often and I get charged different amounts even though I order the exact same thing each time. So there's variation in how much I'm gonna get charged. So that process is not very uh, reliable or very good. Maybe two signal process.
probably about 70% of the time I get charged correctly. Um, yeah, why do I go back? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> Getting correct invoices. What percentage of time are they good? You can look at these percentages and say, where is our process? And I don't know. Maybe we need to start collecting that. And we don't have that data to even know where we're at. So it's not about am I Six Sigma or not. It's just where are we at today and say, where should we be to really make our customers happy? Okay? And so for certain processes, if you have a high volume process that's very critical, you need to be up in the Six Sigma performance or better. You have a process you do three times a year and it's not it's easy to fix, maybe you can live with a two or one sigma process, but you're still gonna waste time. So it's again it's about continuous improvement. How do I get better and better? Because you can see that when you go up to higher sigma levels, your cost your costs go down because you're spending less time fixing and dealing with the customer complaints. Where's my document at? Did you lose it? Do I have to send another one in? Um, oh, that was wrong. You filled out the wrong information. You put the wrong thing on the form. You have to redo it. All those things cost time for someone to deal with those problems. And that's eating away at you doing new stuff. But you're back here fixing the old stuff. So there's a cost that goes along with poor quality of those processes. The framework for making improvements is to go through a model called DMAIC, or DMAIC. And those letters represent something, kind of like Tim Woods. First one is defining the problem. This is one of the critical pieces, is when you get a team of people together and you start talking about a problem, you might have eight people in the room and you might have eight different perspectives on that problem. And you need to figure out how can we get on the same page? Because otherwise, when we're trying to solve this problem, we're all gonna be thinking about it in different ways and we'll never come to a solution. The so first step is agree on what the problem is. And sometimes the answer is, it's actually not even a problem. Okay, great, then we can move on to something else. Sometimes there's a perception of a problem. Or sometimes we realize it's way worse than we even realized. But we at least gotta get everyone on the same page of what is the problem. And usually I like to think about it as a gap. We're supposed to be at this performance and we're here. And so the problem is we have a gap on where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be at 99%, we're at 94%. So we've got 5% improvement we have to make. Okay? Second phase, measure. What data do I need to solve this problem? So Six Sigma is very data focused. It says maybe you should go collect data on your process. Starting tomorrow, Write down every time these things happen and set them off to the side and we'll go through it as a team and look at the problems and try to categorize them into different groups. Maybe that will help us figure out what's happening. Or maybe we can extract a report out of our system and we can make some simple charts and graphs and that might help us understand what's going on. And we need to walk the process and talk to the people in the process and say, what do you think is going on with this problem? What's your idea? You deal with this every day. I bet you have a lot of good ideas on this. And we might need to get everyone in a room together and say, here's the problem. Let's look at the process steps we go through and make sure that we understand what everyone's doing and make sure we really have a good process here. From there, then we analyze the problem. 
and that may be getting to the root of the issue, what's really going on? And if you say it's somebody screwing up or a department doesn't try hard, that's not a good answer. It should be what process is not working the way we want it to. So it should always come back to not people, but processes, okay? So if you keep that mindset open, it's much easier to have discussions with people when you're saying, I'm not pointing at you or your team, we're saying the process is broke. Someone's not giving you the right information. Something's getting through our process. We're not doing things consistently. There's some process issue that's going on. So let's try to figure out what is broke and let's try to fix that. Improve then is actually going and doing the improvements. And you're looking at it and say, boy, it takes a long time to get to improvements. I've got 50 ideas right now I can go off and do. And that's the challenge is people want to run off and change a bunch of things without studying the problem thoroughly. And so what you're saying is go a little bit slower, take a methodical approach, so when you get to the improvements, you have the data and the supporting evidence to say this is the right approach to take. Versus let's try this out and oops, that didn't work and now we're even in worse shape. You know, small stuff we can try out, little things like that. But when we try to make big changes in the process, uh, we want to make sure we are pretty confident that's going to work. Because it can take a lot of effort and time and even money to go implement those. So what we're saying is go a little bit slower at first. Make sure you have everyone in agreement on what the problem is before you start launching into improvements. And what data do you need to be able to make those decisions from? And then the last piece, control, says... How do I make sure that the problem doesn't come back again? So great, we fixed it and it looks better. And then we walk away and then a new person comes in and then that problem shows up again. Oh, you know, we never did add it to the training class. And we never did update the documentation. And we left the old system in place so they could still use it. So um, obviously we shouldn't be surprised that that problem recurred again. So what are the things we're going to do to control and make sure that problem doesn't come back? And if it does, we have the tracking and charting to notice that it did. Oh, we're tracking the wait times, and the wait times are climbing up. What's going on? Let's jump into it now. Let's not wait for the customer to complain. We can see in the data that something's going wrong. Any questions about those, those steps? So through the Six Sigma training, they, they go through and we teach different tools that go along with each of these phases. And that's the part that makes it a little easier to digest because before Six Sigma was just, here's 100 different improvement tools. Just go pick the right one at the right time. And this one says, start with this process, use these tools. Go to the next process, use these tools. It's more methodical and easier for people to learn. So that's what I think is really the important part of it. It's not new tools, it's formatting the tools in the right order. So I mentioned data a lot. Um, you can't guarantee you make improvements if you don't have data before and after. Otherwise, it's just kind of gut feel. Well, it feels better, but it would be much better if we had numbers to look at. To say, yep, it used to take four minutes, now it takes two minutes. Versus, well, I think it's faster. That's not as um, reliable numbers. It's just guessing. Um, we also want to make sure that the improvements were actually a result of the changes we made, not just it just happened to improve on its own. 
because our processes go through ebbs and flows and things like that. So we want to be very clear about when we introduce some changes and be able to measure that. To say, no, that improvement is directly because of the training we did. Or the training we did didn't actually work. Because we isolated out our data and we can see that it actually didn't, didn't work. So what do we need to try now? Okay? And you have to have good data. If you have bad data, you're going to make bad decisions from that data. So there's a whole approach around making sure your data is of good quality. And sometimes that means we have to start over. Our data system is not trustworthy. And it and might have to be get a clipboard and a piece of paper and a pen and start writing down numbers on a, on a sheet until we can figure out what's going on. <coughs> Other times you have all the data in the database and you just need to look at that data and do something with that information. It's already there. So it can vary quite a bit on what kind of uh, system you have in place. And so it could be a lot of effort or very little effort. One of the tools is called a Pareto chart. How do you prioritize what to work on in that problem statement? Because if we're going to go after climate action, we could, you know, well, how do we solve all these problems? It's daunting. It's overwhelming. So Six Sigma would say, pick the top ones, focus all your attention on those. And try to put a dent in one of these two major categories and you'll have a huge impact overall on the bigger problem. What you end up seeing is everybody's doing a little bit on all these things and then we're not seeing the, the overall progress we'd like to make. And so prior to that, prioritizing what you can actually address and staying focused on the things that have the biggest impact. Say, if I can just fix this one or two problems out of all of them, it's called the 80-20 rule. If I can fix the top 20%, I can maybe have impact on 80% of the total problem. So it's a smarter way of going after certain parts of the problem. Yeah. Um, so this, this graph is super important to the type of work that we do. Um, if you look at the bottom right, it talks about uh, the emissions from various parts of what's called the life cycle of a product or a service. And so a lot of people say, like, I'm taking care of the environment, I recycle. Well, disposal in all those categories, for the most part, represents just that tiny little bit of an item's carbon footprint. The red? Yeah, yeah. the red. So it's um, the production or distribution and use of all these products that is the biggest environmental footprint. So if you think about all that inventory in that closet, um, yes, that has that is solid waste, but think about all of the waste involved in the manufacturing of all of those goods and services. So running a lean operation not only reduces your waste as you throw away, but it's reducing all of the back uh, upstream uh, emissions and all that sort of stuff. And this is where like solid waste management is going. We're gonna like we're working to educate people that yes, you should recycle, but reduce and reuse is so much more important because then you're actually looking at the overall um, life cycle and reducing that life cycle. Uh, the orange is the production yeah. impact, yeah. So if you don't have to produce something, you can reuse it or refurbish it, we don't have to go through that same cost each time. But it's all a prioritization because you have limited time and resources. And so let's let the data help us prioritize what we can focus on to have the biggest bang for the buck. And they said, we can't solve it all, but we can put a dent in a couple of those problems if we focus our attention there. Charts and graphs. This is where we start to understand our data a little bit. I'm not gonna go through all these different charts, but the idea is that 
if we look at the data and turn that into information and something visual that people can say, take all this information <laughs> and compile it into something useful that we can make decisions from, you gotta do it in some visual way. There's lots of different charts that are taught in Six Sigma around ways to visualize and make the data tell different stories. And I'll show you a couple examples here. But I always start with, there's a lot of statistics, but most of the audience is not gonna be statistically um, sound and um, remember all the stuff they might have learned at some point. So the charts and graphs are what is gonna catch people's attention and make it simple for them to understand what's going on. So I did a little experiment in some of my classes. I would have them determine, you're part of a process and your, your job is to separate out the different water, types of water. And I'm gonna give them a task to say, I'm gonna give you uh, some samples of water. I want you to tell me which of the four water um, you're tasting. And so I'll, I'll set out like 12 cups of water. Each cup uh, has three samples of each, each type. So for, so in those 12 cups, there's three Fiji, three Zephyr Hills, three 7-Eleven generic, and three from the tap. And I have them go around and taste test and say, tell me what that one was. Do you think that people could distinguish between those four? No? Yes, anyone? No? Okay. Um, you're right, they cannot tell them apart. So this was the actual answer. And if you look across here at the right, the percent correct is how many, so I had three different people test, but how many times did all three of them get the right answer? And then down here on the column is how many times did each person get the right answer? And so you could see that they struggled to have three different people even get the right answer, and then each person never got above like 40% right. This is the type of data we can run to say, is this process working at assessing the water quality, uh, which type of water it is? And I would say the answer is no, this process doesn't work. So we need to change it, or we need to find a new method, or stop checking it, wasting time inefficiently assessing this process. And so this is a way that we can validate are things working the way they're supposed to in our process. And what you do is you give people multiple attempts to look at the same thing over and over again. You don't tell them it's the same thing and see if they get the same answer each time. So that's a type of an experiment you run to validate some data. So a couple minutes, talk about what is the data situation in your, in your work. Do you have a lot of data? Do you have no data? Do you have data by hand? Is it in a spreadsheet? Is it on a computer buried somewhere in a system? What is your data system about your process? Do you have data? What's it look like? So take, a, again, another discussion for a couple minutes with your partner. <laughs> 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 Would you share what they talked about? Do we have a really good situation? Tons of data? Nobody? Okay. They would have no data they can think of that's possible to look at. If you were to, if I was to ask you, how is your process performing today? How many of you would say, like, I have no idea? It must be working. It must right? be working. It's going to be, yeah. But, uh, so the first step sometimes is just getting a hold of some data to say, where are we at? And then you might realize, ooh, we do have a problem. Or actually, we're doing pretty good. 
but so if you have to resort to even just manual writing down on a sheet of paper, that works. Not the best, most efficient way to do it, but it's something, at least it gets you started. So don't let technology be bar a barrier to doing improvements. But definitely you can leverage that technology to gather lots of information as well. But don't let that stop. Oh, we need, we need to wait for the new database system to go online before we can do any improvements. That's not true. There's easier, simpler ways to get started with that. Um, even if it's a little bit, takes a little bit more effort to do that. So the different belt systems as part of Six Sigma, and that's really based on training and application. Lean does not have a belt system or any kind of certification level, formally. It's just about practicing and applying the tools all the time. Six Sigma kind of went a different route and had very structured uh, levels. So a white belt is like you get an introductory class, maybe it's a half day or a full day on Six Sigma. You're kind of, this is kind of like a white belt level class on Lean Six Sigma. Yellow belt is white belt, plus you get a little bit extra tools. You learn a little bit more tools, process mapping, and maybe go deeper into 5S, stuff like that. Green belt is kind of the level where you start to learn quite a few tools, and then the, the goal is to go off and apply those tools. So maybe a couple of weeks of training, one to two weeks. Plus there's an expectation that you go apply it to your work and show evidence that you understand how the tools work. And then the levels get higher from there, more training, but also more expectations around how much implementation you do. So again, with all these things, you can sit and learn about these things all day long, but if you don't go apply it, it's not gonna really be useful. And that's where you're gonna learn the most, is through practice. So that's why the levels increase in, not, in what training you go through, but also the experience and application goes up, the expectations go up as well. And there's pros and cons of certification, so I see both sides of it. Um, I don't think it's the answer, but it does help to kind of establish some kind of uh, levels of, of knowledge, so at least you know kind of where people are at. So this is an example of um, one of the key tools in Six Sigma called the statistical process control. This is at Honda, and so you'll see an application in a factory setting, but I want you to think about your process and think about why they're doing the chart. And they're gonna go through an example on how the chart helped them. And think about that, how did that work in our, your process to identify problems sooner, okay? In manufacturing, measuring the results of each process is vital to the success of the company. At Honda of America, they rely on statistical process control to continually monitor and improve their processes. Statistical process control is simply uh, monitoring the consistency and the repeatability of a specific process. Um, uh, it's not a complicated thing. It's uh, really a, quite a simple approach to understanding what is the reliability of my process. Uh, an example of that might be torquing a bolt. Uh, in, in torquing a bolt, um, there are a lot of variables that can go wrong to cause uh, an over-torque or an under-torque situation. Uh, in, in that example, if we apply statistics and understand the actual capability of the process, we can predict uh, the failure rate uh, within that process and make running adjustments uh, so that we don't have actual problems occur. Another example of Honda's use of data collection to understand its processes 
is the door closing speed test. This test measures how fast a door needs to be moving in order to close, but without slamming it. Connie is preparing to measure the door closing speed on our four-door Civic. The purpose of this test is to measure the amount of speed that it takes to close the door based on a customer's perception. The first thing she'll do is she'll scan the VIN number into the Datamite. The Datamite is simply a handheld computer. She prepares the car by making sure it's completely sealed and then she attaches the sensor to the rear door and the interrupter to the left side driver's door. She'll repetitively take readings of the door closing versus the door not closing until she gets within 0.1 kilometers per hour. The gauge reads in kilometers per hour. So when she reaches a point where she's within 0.1 kilometers per hour of the door closing versus the door not closing, that's the reading she records. It may take about 10 to 15 tries to get an accurate reading. found her reading and now she'll punch the numbers into the data mine. The door closing speed data is input into the computer and a statistical software package is used to analyze the data. We use SPC control charts to analyze the data. At the top is an X chart or individuals chart. As you can see, the data is consistent and stable. There is no assignable causes present, only common cause variation. In addition to the SPC charts, we also use a histogram in order to do a process capability on this particular characteristic. The histogram shows a, a distribution of the data based on about the last two weeks of data. The CPK is a capability index that tells us how well we are at meeting our specifications. Industry standard shoots for a CPK of 1.33, and we are currently meeting that. We have a number of different ways that uh, we collect data or do statistical process control and monitoring. Uh, those range from equipment that automatically collects the data uh, to uh, a manual process where the associate's actually taking a reading and plotting it manually on a chart uh, to a process where uh, we may be doing some offline inspection and actually uh, collecting data uh, with some hand gauges. Uh, this data is uh, processed in a number of different ways, but the most effective method is by the associate understanding what do they do when they're out of control, when they find a point or a measurement that is not where it is supposed to be, and then they take action on it on an ongoing basis. Um, waiting and analyzing the result after uh, is not always that effective, but for continuous improvement, doing it as you go is what's important. During the door closing speed test, a result came back that extended outside the upper control limit on the control chart. This indicated that for one door on one certain car, it took an unusually high amount of speed to close the door without slamming it. This is an individual's chart, or an X chart, showing a plot of data of door closing speeds over a certain period of time. On the chart, you'll notice an out of control condition at this point, meaning there is an assignable cause potentially present. This assignable cause was investigated, and it was found to be a problem with the fixture used to install the striker. 
The striker was installed slightly offset due to a broken fixture. When the striker is slightly offset, it will cause the door closing speed to be higher than normal. The fixture was replaced and the data fell back into control and it was consistent and predictable once again. By teaching their employees to understand statistical process controls and how to immediately counteract out-of-control situations, Honda prevents problems from recurring during manufacturing and is able to maintain an outstanding level of quality control. Okay, so, yeah, different process, but the key thing was that they had, the, the data told them there was a problem and they didn't notice it. Something had broken one of the fixtures and the data started acting unusual. And then they went, it forced them to go back and say, what's going wrong here? And they found that broken fixture. If they didn't have that chart, it could have been days or weeks before they noticed that problem. And that's what a recall is called. Right? Now we have all these cars back that we made over the last couple of weeks, and they can put out a lot of cars in a couple of days. How many recalls that would require to go check all the ones that were suspect from the time it broke to when they actually noticed the problem. So for them, it's critical that they get on top of these problems very quickly, not let them drag out because that's very expensive. So I'll just show you a real a quick couple more things because we're running low on time here. So um, one of the projects I worked on was energy reduction, and I used the Six Sigma methods to do that. We took a look at the different facilities, and it's pretty obvious in our Pareto chart which one to focus on. It was headquarters, a huge building. I had no data, so I had to go around the clipboard and record data off of different submeters. There's 52 submeters in the building. I had to find them all first. And then we had to take turns going and collecting data and we built a pie chart of where the energy was coming from. Then we did some modeling to kind of validate it and it told us temperature was really important to affecting our kilowatt hours, which is obvious. So we can't control the temperature, but we can control the equipment that runs uh, the hot heating and cooling in the building. And that's where we focused a lot of attention on the setback program. Because we, we turned out, we talked to everybody that it just runs 24 seven at the temperature. Um, whether people are in the building or not. So we came up with a program that looked at actually when people were leaving and coming into the building and we adjusted it to only operate in the zone, the proper zones during that, those times. So we pulled badge swipe data and looked at actual entry coming in and out of the building. And then they had a button here that was installed on the wall that said, if you come in at an odd time, we don't want to discourage people from coming to work. You just press that button, you get two hours of normal temperature. And if you stay for four hours, press it again. So we didn't want to, so that was a way to kind of deal with the change resistance to saying, oh, I might come on the weekend, I don't want it to be too cold or too hot in here. Um, they had those buttons installed, uh, ready to go installed, but it cost $50,000 to install, and they couldn't get approval. When we went through our data, we, and we did a pilot project in one section, a small <coughs> section of the building, and that pilot project said, you will get that money back very quickly, within six months, if you do this program. That was what we needed, the data we needed to sell to management to go forward with that project. So the idea wasn't new, they actually already purchased the items, but they couldn't get it uh, implemented because they didn't have the data. So that's really what we, the project brought to the table there. Um, so I'm going to skip on through. There's a couple more charts. This is a, a donation or sales from a nonprofit by day. 
And then you can look at staffing and say, do we have our staffing lined up and, and matched up properly with when our sales are for those days? And maybe do we have more people on Saturdays and less people on Tuesdays? So the data helps us make better decisions. Um, and we also have to look at a lot of the processes improvements we talked about really focus on the actual process. But it, make sure you're also looking at outside the process, like at the heating and the cooling and the lighting and the pipes and the chemicals and the water flows. Those are all the environmental aspects of your processes. Those often get overlooked in normal Lean Six Sigma improvements. So to really get a full picture of the whole impact of that problem, make sure you include these other areas that are outside there, including the solid waste and the landfill charges and the pickup fees and all that. <coughs> so don't just see too narrowed, they, you overlook the other areas of the process, behind the walls, basically. So if you don't have enough time, maybe start with 10 minutes a day, or one hour a week. You can do a lot in that time to carve out time for improvement. If your management, management doesn't support this idea, then apply it to your own work, or do it at home. And if you don't think you know enough, uh, I taught you about eight ways and five S. You can do a lot with those two tools. Um, and practice. I would say practice those tools instead of saying, oh, I need to go through weeks and weeks of training. No, you, you have already some ideas you can go implement. And you can Google search a lot of stuff. Almost everything's out there. I could probably to piece to, together your own improvement program and training by online resources that are out there. And I, I do have a free course that you can take to go into deeper uh, topics that we've introduced here. Um, so I just want you to make sure that you can think about application of this to your personal life. At least something you took away from today that you can apply at home. If you can apply it at work too, even better. But at home you have full ownership of that. It's your processes and you deal with every day. You figure out a way to get ready in the morning faster and make dinner faster, and do the dishes faster, and mow the lawn faster, and vacuum the house faster, and make it simple and easy, and you don't actually dread it, you actually look forward to it because it's organized and streamlined. It'll just, it'll just get you started and down this path. It just takes that first improvement. And I mentioned before, make sure you um, start with your own processes. Don't try to lean out someone else's processes. So that's a pretty funny <laughs> And this is the link. So you, I'll, I'll send out. Greg will send out all the slides. If you have these, the links should be able to access. Those videos are all on YouTube. So, um, just to summarize, and we'll take questions here. Um, the Lean and Six Sigma methods are two different methods, but they are merging together. Probably the last 10, 15 years, most companies have some blended approach between those two. They're very effective and successful, but. What we're trying to do is spread this knowledge to every organization because the application is there. Just maybe you have to think about it a little differently for your type of work. Look for the eight wastes in your work and in your personal life. Organize your space using the 5S methods. Start small. Don't go after, oh, I need this huge, big implementation and big change and big solution. Start simple, small, little things. But stop doing things the customer doesn't want. Start doing things they do want. Um, collect data to better understand your problem. Work together with your coworkers and staff. And then if you are a manager, help them become better problem solvers. Don't give them the answer. 
ask leading questions. Instead of saying, oh, you need to do this and that'll fix it. Just say, what would you do? How could you better organize that area? I liked your example. Don't tell them how to organize the toys and the uh, clothes and the things they play with. Ask them to organize in a way that they can find what they want quickly and then it's put away at the end of the day. And see what they come up with. You'll, you'll be surprised. Work in teams, more people better than one. You'll have better ideas. But really, never lose sight of who you're serving and what your process is intended for. And make sure they are number one focus of your improvements. If, it, if what you're gonna do is gonna hurt or be negative to them, then you're probably doing the wrong improvement. Okay, so these are some other links. If you want to see examples of lean applied to like nonprofits, natural disaster recovery, some healthcare examples, outside kind of like uh, non-traditional organizations, there's some links there. I have a Lean Portland group. We do volunteer work with nonprofits. That's where the Free Geek and Restore and Rebuilding Center examples come from. Uh, this is, these are examples where the courses for uh, Lean Six Sigma applications to the environment. So that'll be good for those of you working on your green business initiatives. That's my consulting. Any questions? A lot to digest. Give you a lot of different things to think about, but uh, hopefully enough to give you some ideas and where you can start. Maybe later today, maybe tonight, maybe sometime this week. Yes. Yep. This one? Earlier? Yes. Any other questions? Yeah, we got just a feedback form. So I need data. You know what we're doing, right? Um, get feedback. And this is, you know, like when you go talk to your customers, you're going to hear some things that probably aren't very pleasing. And that's okay. You say, all right, we want to try to improve. So sometimes it's, you need to hear the feedback, right? So if you have any suggestions or comments about it, uh, about the class, let me know. Any other questions while we're handing those out? Anyone's, anyone struggling to see where they could apply some of these methods to their work or their home? I'm also will stick around if you have really specific questions you want to run by me or have a scenario you want to talk to. I'll stick around as long as you want. Greg, do you have anything else? Can we give Brian a round of applause? I want to give a big shout out to Brian. Brian does a lot of really wonderful work in the community um, out of the goodness of his own heart, not always out of his bank account. And um, I think it's really awesome that you've made that a priority in your life and it's benefiting many people. So we appreciate it. It's fun. And important.